If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I will confess, word has got around, I preached a very, very long time in the early service, okay? So I'm tired. Voice is not all that great. So we're going to pray that I don't do that in this service. But it's so good to be able to be back to some sense of normalcy uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, We're continuing the series that we started as school was letting out. We said a summer with King David, and uh, we've had so many things going on uh, the last few weeks. We kind of got away from that. But if you remember, if you were here From the previous messages of this series, we know that the nation of Israel is in a dark place. They're in a dark time as a nation spiritually. Okay? And we learned that a lot of time when we find ourselves in in a dark place spiritually, whether it be uh, nationally or in our own personal lives, when we find ourselves in a dark place, it is because we have taken our eyes off of the light, who is Jesus Christ. When we take our eyes off of the light and we step out of the light, then we're stepping into a dark place. And and this is where we find the, the nation of Israel. And you know what? We can, we can look at this and go, well, we know why Israel got in the mess that they are in. We see, you know, yeah, bad them. Look at what they did. But can we just step back for a minute as this week we will, many of us will uh, uh, celebrate uh, the birthday of this great nation, the United States of America. And we ought to celebrate that. It is a great nation. And we ought to celebrate the freedoms that we have and, and everything about that. But folks, can I tell you, can we just step back from this this morning and say, you know what, this isn't just an Israel problem. Israel wasn't just in a dark spot as a nation, but the United States today is in a dark place spiritually as a nation. Amen? We are. And it's because we've taken our eyes off the light. We've taken our eyes off Jesus. And I think we can see so much symbolism in what is taking place here in this passage of Scripture today. And I know, I appreciate Carla so much reading it, but, but as you kind of read it, you kind of went, what's this? And why are we reading this? And what, why does this matter to us? Well, I hope today before we leave here, we will see exactly why this matters to us. This mattered a lot to the nation of Israel, and this matters a lot to us today as children of God as well. I appreciate Daniel uh, continuing this series while I was away at General Assembly, and he preached from 1 Samuel chapter 9. And so that got us all to the point where Israel had gotten what they wanted, right? And we had talked about the fact sometimes God will just give you what you want. You be saying, you, you, you be saying, you'll be saying, you know, God, I, I, I want this. And you just keep saying, I want this, I want this, I want this. And finally, God may just say, okay, I'll give you what you want. And, then, and you, you can look and see what happens. Well, that's kind of how this thing with Israel went. 
Okay, so you want a big bad king, you want somebody that's successful, you want somebody that's powerful, uh, you want them to, to run your nation so that you can have pride in who you are. You can have an identity, right, as this great nation. You can have security because this leader is going to come in and, buddy, he's going to put Israel first, right? And so you'll have security in, in who you are. And, and you know what? When you have this identity that you can be proud in who you are and you can have this security in who you are, then guess what? You'll then be happy. And so they said, this is Saul. This is the man. I mean, look at the success. Look at his pedigree. Look at his resume. Look at who he is. He's literally head and shoulders above everybody else. This is our guy. Boy, we are on the right track. God said, okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what you want. Here's King Saul. And so that's kind of where we are at in this. And so, uh, you know, the people thought that this strong and powerful king would, would give them what they wanted or what they thought they needed. And so today, we're finally getting to the point. I mean, we've called this series A Summer with David, and it's almost Christmas now. And we're just now getting to David, right? Uh, we're just seeing David show up here in, in 1 Samuel. And, and what we're going to see this morning and what I want to talk about a little bit today is we're going to see a what I would call a blank space. All right, a blank space in Scripture. Uh, a blank space in time. And what I mean by that, let me explain what I mean by that, is that there are times in the Bible to where there's just no record of things happening. There, there's no record that God is doing anything. We don't know if God is involved. Uh, maybe he's absent. May, you know, maybe even the people in the story are thinking the exact same thing. You know, I'm going through this blank space here, God. Where are you at? Are you, are you absent? And we're going to see one of these today uh, just after verse 13 there in our Scripture. God sends Samuel, who, if, if you remember, was the greatest prophet that Israel had had up to this point in time. And we know the story of that from previous messages. But anyway, God sends Samuel to anoint David, this young shepherd boy, to be the next king of Israel. That's basically the story in a nutshell. God sends Samuel to anoint David to be the king, right? When he anoints him, the scripture says that, you know, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon David. And then, blank space. And when verse 14 picks up, the story switches to something else. And you know what? David will not become king for another 15 years. At least 15 years. David goes from being anointed to king to this blank space that we have. He didn't immediately become king. He didn't even go down to the palace and start taking personal development classes. You know, he didn't go down to the palace and start trying on robes once he was anointed. No, he didn't do those things. He goes from this incredible experience of being anointed as the next king of Israel, the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And he goes back to the pasture. Being a shepherd. And doing what shepherds do. And I really don't know what that is. 
But that's what he went back to doing, I guess, chasing around sheep. And this whole time was represented by this blank space. And you have to wonder, what is David thinking during this time period? What is David thinking while all this is going on? And I think the feelings that David must have felt during this time, I think we've probably all felt them at some point in time in our lives as well. These times where God appears to be absent. These times where God appears to be inactive. I mean, we had this powerful experience. We had our NYC. We had our church camp. We had our old-fashioned revivals. We had all these things in the past. And we've experienced these powerful presence of God in His work. And then, blank space. Where'd He go? He, he, was, he was there, but He was here powerfully, but now, blank. Has He forgotten you? Did he get distracted by something else he was doing and forget about you and get tied up on another job somewhere? Maybe I thought that was him, but maybe it was just a coincidence and I got caught up in some emotion because now it's just dead. It's just blank space. Have you ever been there? Are you there now? Honestly, blank spaces have been some of the most frustrating times in my life. And I think some of you can relate to that. Where I'm sitting here going, God, what are you doing? Where are you? What's going on? Why is this taking so long? They, they can be some of the most frustrating times in our life. But here's what I learned. It's in those moments where it appears that God is not doing anything that often that is where he's done his greatest work. You know, I, I, I can remember, you know, when I was younger, some of the things that I've been through, some of the things that I've learned, some of the things that I was taught, I still, I still lean into that, right? I still lean into that. Even the uh, time, you know, times before I ever even thought that I might ever be a preacher, I could see how God was preparing me in, in those times. In, in those times where I knew God had a call on my life, and I was like, nope, ain't doing that, wrong guy. I got a great job, making a lot of money. I got all this stuff to get and buy, and sorry, I'm out. And God's like, ha-ha, it's your plan. But you know what I could see in all that time that I was putting God off in that 16 years that I worked a secular job and was telling God no? You know what he was doing in that time, even in my rebellion? He's preparing me for what he knew was coming. He was preparing me then. And I didn't even realize it. I didn't even know it. I didn't even see it. It's, it, it's those moments where we think that God is not doing anything, that he's doing some of his greatest work. And that's what we're going to see here today if I ever get to it. So just a little context here. I'm sorry, that was a long introduction. Maybe a long day for us, folks. I don't know. Just a little context here. Saul has been made king. All on the same page? Say amen. Saul is king, right? But he's not being a very good king. See, he's who they wanted. He was, looked like a great option. But he's not being a very good king. 
He looked great, but his character was far from great, okay? He relied on himself and who he was. He relied on his wisdom. He relied on his strength. He relied on who he was, and he didn't rely on God. And friends, that doesn't work. Hello? Somebody need to hear that. It doesn't work. If you think you can do it all on your own, it's not going to work. And that's where they're at. And so here's what God does. He removes his power from the nation of Israel. He removes his anointing from Saul as king. God basically steps back and says, there you go, gave, gave you what you wanted, and now here's what you get. And that's, that's where they're at. But while they're in their time of separation, God is at work preparing the next king, the next leader that he wants to be their leader. All right, let's pick it up, starting in verse 1. We're not going to read it all again. Carla read it for you. We're just going to look at parts of this. The Lord said to Samuel, again, this great prophet, How long will you mourn for Saul, right? I've cut off Saul. We're done with Saul. How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel goes down to to Bethlehem. Uh, Carla read the whole story for us. If you don't remember, hopefully you've got a Bible there. Samuel goes down to Bethlehem. He finds Jesse. He tells him that God has sent him to anoint one of his sons as king. You know, they're all there. They're all present. The sons, Jesse, Samuel, and everything. And Jesse is like, okay, here's the deal. I know exactly who you're here for, right? My oldest son is like, he is so awesome. He's, he's you know, he's smart. He's, he's in the, you know, he's in the beta club. He's, you know, like the best athlete. He's strong. He's powerful. He's good looking. He's all these things and more. And he said, you're here for my oldest son, Eliab or Eliab, whatever you want to call him, right? I may call him both. Eliab. That's who you're here for. He's the greatest, finest son anyone can have. And so they, you know, they say, hey, Eliab, come here and meet Samuel. Right? Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Man, he just looks the part. He looks good. Got a great resume. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. Hello? People look at the outward appearance. People look at the resume. People look at the, the financial portfolio. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? And Samuel, of all people, should have known better in this moment because this is exactly what happened with Saul. This is the whole Saul scenario all over, right here in this moment. You know, just because you look good, just because you've got this great resume, just because you look like a king on the outside doesn't give you the heart of God's king on the inside. Sure, Eliab is probably all-American athlete, valedictorian, most likely to succeed, but he's not the one that God is looking for. And you know what? We see this happen over and over and over again in Scripture, if you pay attention. So Samuel says to Jesse, hey, uh, 
you got any other sons, right? And Jesse sends for his second son. Second one is a little less impressive as Eliab, but he still fits the profile. Tall, good-looking, smart, strong, but God says not him either. Send for another, and we know that they do this seven times. Seven sons are there at this gathering, at whatever it was. It says they're at, I forgot, but Jesse and his seven sons. Samuel goes through them all. Nope, nope, nope. Verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. I'm sure at this point this has gotten awkward, right? Don't you imagine? I mean, think about what's taking place here. And Jesse is going through his sons, and Samuel's like, I'm here to anoint one of your sons as king, which, you know, is totally mind-boggling anyway. I mean, what if somebody shows up at your house and says, you know what, your, your kid's going to be the next president of the United States. We're fixing to take the oath right here, and when he grows up, he'll be president. I mean, that kind of might blow your mind, right? And so Jesse is like, well, you know, this definitely this one. No, not that one. Okay, well, here's second best. Well, you know, and, and go all, all the way down, and now... Samuel says, Jesse, are these all the kids you have? <laughs> are, are, are you sure you don't have one she don't know about? Or where, where do you have another kid? Because God says I'm here for one of your kids, for one of your sons. Just by the way, how many of you, this was you or is you in your family, David? Huh? right? Hunter was this one in our family, right? He was the neglected child. He was the one that nobody had, a, you know, we, we never, honestly never thought he would graduate from high school. I don't know how he got a doctorate. Uh, I guess if you just pay him enough money, they'd give you anything. But um, So this was Hunter, and the reason it was is because, I don't know, for those of you that may be visiting, my, my boys, they were both up here earlier. They're identical twins, uh, they were born within five minutes of each other, but Hayden was born first. And so he's the favorite son. And Hunter was born second, and he's never been the favorite son. Um, and this was David. And the reason David is out tending to the sheep is because, number one, he's the youngest, and because... Nobody thinks he can do anything else because he don't even know where his shoes are. Um, and Hunter played this part out really well. I mean, he did. He embraced it. He embraced the fact that we had no hope for him. Um, I, I remember one time he just screamed out loud, Nobody likes me! I'm like, huh? It's on you, bro. Uh, sorry. We've made fun of him for that ever since. I mean, he was a little bit kid when he said it, uh, but we still make fun of him for saying that. But those of you that know, you know that, that uh, Hunter moved back up when uh, he came back. He moved back from college, uh, graduated a year before Hayden did, and, and uh, now he's having the first grandbaby. And so Hunter's moving back up. <clears throat> I'm just telling you, i got to go on. So that's exactly how David must have felt, right? Jesse said, here's Jesse. Well, yeah, I got another one. <laughs> you know, he's tending the sheep. And in this culture, you know, the, the youngest would have been unimportant. unimportant. 
Uh, really would have. And so he's out keeping the sheep, which was the job nobody else wanted. None of the other sons wanted to do it. He was the youngest. Yeah, this is your responsibility. All right, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. I love this. Samuel's about had it. Do you see this? Okay, you're supposed to have all of your sons here, right? All right, so you don't have them all here, and now we're going to have to wait. So you know what? We're not going to sit down until he gets back. All right, that's just funny to me. I don't know if it was, y'all. Verse 12, so he sent for him, had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Other translations are not quite as nice to David as the NIV is here. One translation refers to him as ruddy, R-U-D-D-Y. And nobody knows what that means, but it doesn't sound flattering, okay? Uh, so whatever Ruddy is, but on any account, David is the last choice, last pick, the unexpected, the lowly shepherd boy. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So why is this long story and all this drama and all about this sacrifice and getting them together and all this story about seven sons not being the ones. Why, why is verse, can I say, why is verse 1 through 13 even in the Bible? I mean, it makes no sense. If God knew that he wanted David to be king, why not just tell Samuel, go to Jesse and say, you want to see David, right? It could have been that simple. I could have done that in one verse, right? So, so why... Why the whole charade of this story? Well, first of all, it teaches us a lot of lessons. And the first story that we learn here is this, and it's obvious. God chooses the unlikely. God chooses the unlikely. This is one of the most consistent, reoccurring points throughout Scripture. Uh, And God chooses the unlikely. From Genesis to Revelation, we see it over and over again. From then uh, until now, though, culture and the world has always favored who? The biggest, the strongest, the most successful, the wealthiest, the, you know, the best looking. But who does God choose? The most unlikely, the overlooked, the underdog. Why? Why does he do that? So that the glory goes to him, right? So people can look at that person and say, I knew him when he was a kid. I knew him when he was a teenager. He was an introvert. He, if, he would have, if somebody would have drug him up on the stage, he would have vomited right before he got up on there, right? Why does, why does God pick and choose people like David? Why does God pick and choose people, you know, There are pastors all up and down this street, and I won't name name names, but I know their past, and I would not have picked them. I would not have picked me. But God does it so people can go, look at what God did. I mean, look at Freddie Mark. (laughs) I'm like, I can't believe two people go to your church. You're an idiot. You know? By the way, we're best friends. If you're visiting, me and Freddie Mark are best friends. I can say that. Brad Curtis, Greater Purpose Fellowship. Should have been in the pen. He is a preacher preaching this morning. 
God does it so that people will see that God changes people's lives. He changes their future. The second lesson that we can learn here in God's kingdom, in God's eyes, character is important. Verse 7 is the key verse. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God does not value what you and I value. He doesn't value what we value. He prioritizes character over charisma. And that's because what we need in a king, what we need in a king, what we need in a leader is someone who will point us to him. What we need in a king and what we need in a leader is someone who will point us to our only hope in this world, and that's Jesus Christ. We need someone who will point us to and restore us to a right relationship with God. You see, our problem is that we have been separated from God because of our pride. We have been separated from God because of our disobedience. And I'm not just talking personally, even though I'm thinking there are probably some people in here could say this applies to them personally. That they've been separated from God because of their pride or their disobedience. But friends, I'm here to tell you today that the, the nation of America is separated from God because of their pride and their disobedience today. And so what we need is someone who will point us to and restore us to a relationship with God. God does not want us finding our identity and our security and our happiness in the Sauls and the Eliabs of this world. He doesn't want us trying to find our identity and our security and our happiness in a leader that looks great, has a great resume, has a great past, has a great portfolio. God could give a rip less about all that. He wants somebody that will point them to him. Our tendency is to choose a king that looks good to us, that promises us success, promises us victory, promises us happiness, promises us financial gain. We have a tendency to choose a king that looks good to us, and then what do we do? We pursue that king. We promote that king. We praise that king. But friends, all of these kings are going to let you down. All of these kings are going to let us down because that is not where salvation is found. The only place you're going to find true identity, true security, and true happiness is through an experience with God and salvation from Him. Amen? The book of Proverbs says it plain as day in verse, chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. Friends, don't miss this. There is a way that appears right, and a lot of people are going that way. 
But in the end, it leads to death. There's a way that looks so good, looks so promising. But it doesn't end where you want it to end. The greatest human mistake is to look for your identity and your security and your happiness. In other words, your salvation. Look for that in all the wrong places. That's what God was teaching Israel through this entire thing. And if we don't learn a lesson from it, it's our own fault. This is what God was trying to teach them then, and this is what God, I believe, wants to teach us now. That salvation only came from being in a right relationship with Him. The things that you really want in life are only come, only going to come through Him. And when it comes to being right with God, character is important. You know, we, t- we tend to evaluate people the way that Israel evaluate in it. Who looks the best? Who will give us the greatest status? Who will make us the most money? Who will make us successful? But that's a terrible, terrible way to go through life. Character brings more blessings into your life than beauty, success, or money. And so if character is important to God, do you believe character? First of all, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that your character is important to God? Okay, a few of you. That's good. It's a good start. But if character is important to God, how much time do you spend preparing and developing your character? I think that's a fair question. If that is what God is looking for, and that's what you are looking for, it's what you should be looking for, how much time do you spend on working on it yourself? And then I want to ask you this question, and some of you are not going to be able to listen for the rest of the morning, and that's okay. Are you the person that the person you are looking for is looking for? I'll give you a minute. Oh, did I not put that up there? It's not a slide. Oh, that just blows the whole message. That's why nobody came to the altar. Are you the person, think about it, are you the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? Let me say it like this. That confused everybody. I'll move on. Here's the deal. These are the things that I'm going to be talking about at your funeral. All right? Let's just put it like it is. The things I'm talking about are the things that we're going to be talking about at your funeral. It will probably never come up at your funeral how much education you had. Probably never come up at your funeral how many certificates you have hanging on your wall. Probably will never come up at your funeral even how much money you had or the trophies that you won. I've been to a lot of rich people's funerals. I've been to a lot of people's funerals that had a lot of money and a lot of stuff. And you know what? At none of those funerals did someone stand up and share what their final bank balance was when they died. I've never seen it happen. You know what? At the time, no one really cared except the kids that were going to get the money. But at the time, no one cared. At your funeral, what I'm going to be talking about is your character. 
not going to be talking about your job resume. Not going to be talking about your portfolio. I'm going to be talking about your character. I'll be talking about how loyal of a friend you were. I'll be talking about how faithful of a church member you were. What a sacrificial mother that she was or father was. I'm going to be talking about how she always put other people first. How he always made time for his family. How gracious and forgiving that she was. I'm going to talk about that. You see, if we say good things about you at your funeral, that's really what it's all about. That's what your life is really all about, are the things that will be said about you at your funeral, which will be talking about your character. Nobody's going to stand by your casket and read your job resume out. But yet we spend so much time trying to build a resume, trying to climb a ladder, trying to build a bank account. But how much time do we spend building character? Our character virtues that truly will make a difference in the world and make a difference in the life of others. And that brings us to the third and final point this morning. Character is best formed in the blank spaces. Again, verse 13 ends with Samuel, the great prophet. His hands are on David's head. He's anointing him with oil. Oil is running down David's head and down his neck. He has this powerful experience of the Holy Spirit rushing up on him. And then blank space. And the narrative ends in verse 14, and it shifts to Saul, right? And David heads back out to the pasture, chasing sheep again for months, possibly even years. So put yourself in David's shoes for just a minute this morning, right? He, he had been anointed king. He had felt this powerful experience of the Holy, Spirit's, Holy Spirit come upon him. He knows that he is supposed to be the king of Israel. But what has happened? Where did God go? What, was this all a mistake? Well, well, think about all those years that David spent in the pasture chasing sheep in this blank space. Here are some things that happened during that time in that blank space I want you to think about. He spent most of his time alone, okay, uh, doing a monotonous job, you know, walking sheep from here to there. I'm sure that was exciting and fun, right? Oh, yeah, and while he was there and the she he wasn't busy trying to chase the sheep, he made a slingshot, and he learned how to shoot this slingshot, and he got pretty good at it while he was out there. I mean, he didn't have anything else to do. Uh, he had gotten this harp for Christmas, and so he takes this harp with him out there to watch the sheep and teaches himself to play the harp, and not only did he uh, play the harp and learn to play it well, but... He also wrote a couple songs while he was out there. 
man, exciting life, playing a harp, singing songs to sheep. I mean, wow, you know, sounds like a pretty dull and insignificant life to me, if you ask me. But in all reality, what was taking place? What was happening here? You see, God was developing him. God was developing his skills with the slingshot that was going to come in handy later, right? And with that harp, David would become so good at the harp that he would even find himself playing the harp before the king in the palace. Not only that, but he would become the world's most famous songwriter. We still sing his songs today. People don't know it. They hate the music, but it's scripture that David has written, and we sing it all the time. He developed courage. You remember the stories where he killed the bear and killed the lion? God gave him the power and the ability to be able to do that. And one day, you know what? He would stand and he would look at Goliath and say, You know what? God helped me and gave me the power to defeat a lion and a bear. I ain't afraid. I ain't scared. Bring it on. David also learned humility in his lowly position of having to be a shepherd. He learned humility. Unlike Saul, David would never forget where he came from. And how he depended on God so many times in so many different situations. Because of his time waiting and wandering in the pastures, he learned to be patient. He learned how to care for people in how he cared for his flock, the sheep. He also learned that God is always faithful. And that God keeps his promises. All of these things were learned in the pasture not in the palace. Church, this is still what God does. This is still how God works in lives today. Hey, Mom, what did you do today? Oh, you know what? I changed dirty diapers all day. I did laundry all day. Man, I I have done nothing significant. (laughs) I have just been a mom today. No, you didn't. No, you didn't just be a mom. You didn't just change diapers. You see, you were, you were building character in you and your work ethic and your faithfulness to, think about this, serving other humans who were made in the very image of God. And you were serving them and, and you were lo- loving them and you were earning their trust. And you know what? One day you would have influence in their lives. You would have influence in their spirit. You would have influence in their future because of the way that you cared for them as a child. You weren't just changing diapers and doing laundry. God was building you and using you in that. Hey, hey, businesswoman or, or, or businessman, what did you do today? Well, you know what? I, I just did the same thing I do every day. Another day, another dollar. Got to show up. Got to get those bills paid. I got to work. It's just a dead-end job, but it is what it is. I'll be done when I'm 64. No. God is doing something in you and through you in that space in that time, in this point of your life. God is building your character and your faithfulness to show up every single day and your faithfulness to take pride in your work and to have good character and do a good job. 
You see, God is building that in you while you do that job, and He's given you character traits that you will lean on and lean into in the future. Those experiences are building you so that God can use you greatly in the days ahead. Don't ignore it just because you think you're in a dead spot or a dead place or a blank space. Hey, student, what did you do? Calculus, and it's stupid, and I'll never use it again the rest of my life? No, you didn't. God is building you, and He's preparing you. Number one, to be faithful to the task. But number two, God is preparing you for a far more important test in the future. You see, He's training you and He's preparing you because the tests that you're going to face when you get older are much greater than a stupid calculus test. He's just preparing you in how to deal with it and how to have the wisdom to work through the problem. He's building that in you. He's at work even if you feel like you're in a blank space. Friends, here's the deal about spending time out in the pasture chasing sheep. Faithfulness in the small produces power in the big. When God is preparing someone for something big, He always sends them to the pasture first. Expect it. It's your blank space. Blank spaces are often how God prepares His children for what's coming. For the future. Do you want to be like David? I mean, God called David a man after his own heart. Wouldn't you like that to be said about you? Wouldn't you like to be said about you that you're a person after God's own heart? Then God must prepare you like he prepared David. So don't waste your pasture time. Don't waste your pain. Don't don't waste your blank space. Be faithful during this time. You're in the lab, right? You're being tested. You're being prepared. And all of that is good stuff, but also real quickly, and I know I've gone over and I'm sorry, but I I can't ignore the fact that we see Jesus in this story. I mean, I want you to think about it. David's story is just a silhouette of what Jesus would step into and come to be in the future. There are so many parallels, and, and, and I'm not going to go through them all. You can think about this later, but you know what? David was an unlikely choice. He wasn't a rising leader, ruler, rabbi, none of that. He wasn't on anybody's radar except God's. David was a lowly shepherd. Jesus was from lowly Nazareth. And they even said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so that's where Jesus came from, right? Jesus was also an unlikely choice. He wasn't raised as a leader. He wasn't raised as a ruler or rabbi or in the temple. Even the people, even the people in his hometown ran him off, right? I've experienced, I was born and raised in Conway. They ran me off. They said, get across the cattern. So that's as far as I could go. It's where the car broke down. All right. And, and so this is Jesus. Nobody cared about him. He wasn't thought to be the next king when he showed up. 
But you know what? There's so many parallels, the anointing, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, all these things. But unlike David, here's the deal. Jesus never ended up in a palace as king. He never ended up in a palace as king. The man truly after God's own heart ended up on a cross. And there he would die for me. There he would die for my sins. There he would die for your sins. We are his sheep. We are his sheep. And he died for all the ways that I wasn't a man after his own heart. He died for that. But because of Jesus and his sacrifice, today, I can say without doubt or reservation, I am a child of God. And that's really important to understand when you're going through pasture time, blank spaces, quiet time, knowing, you know what, I know, I know, even though I may be in the pasture right now, that God has not abandoned me. He has not forgotten about me. He hasn't gotten distracted and moved on. Even when I feel alone, I'm not. He is there and he is doing a work in me that I may not realize at the time, but in time I will. And friends, can I just tell you, in time, you will. In time, you will see it. In time, you will live it and experience it. Just like God worked in David's pastures and in David's blank space, he's working in mine. He, even when we can't feel it, he's working. Even when we can't see it, he's working. That's what God is doing in your blank spaces. So, friends, this morning, I just want to encourage you. Embrace your blank spaces. Embrace your pasture time. Embrace the monotony of everyday life. Because God's at work. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you today for, again, who you are. I thank you for those, those times that, man, it has been so obvious that the power of God was present and real. All of us can go back to those times. God, I, I remember having youth coming back from events, and they would be so fired up because they had experienced a great movement of the Spirit. And there was no denying that you were there, and you were present, and you were making changes in people's lives and in their hearts. And I'd see those kids come back year after year after year fired up. And then the dead spaces. 
the blank spaces. And God, forgive us because so many of us lose our focus during those times. We take our focus off the light. And when we do that, we find ourselves in the dark. And sometimes the reason we take ourselves off the light is because we begin to wonder, where are you? What are you doing? What's going on here? Why is this the same day after day after day? God, thank you for this reminder today that you're present, you're there, you're at work in us, preparing us for what you have ahead. So today, I want to thank you for what you've done. I want to thank you for those past experiences where we knew without a doubt that you were there. I want to thank you for what you're doing right now, what you're doing here today, because I believe with all my heart that your Holy Spirit is speaking into people's hearts. (laughs) That's been my prayer. God, I'm also going to thank you for what you're going to do in the days ahead because we know that you are at work preparing us for what's ahead. So I'm looking forward to that. And I thank you for it. I thank you for your son, Jesus. God, be with those in our church that are hurting, those that are sick, those that are suffering right now, that they might see you in what they're going through. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that I pray. Would you stand with me this morning as we dismiss with our benediction? Would you read it with me? Lord, let us go out into the world in peace and dedicated to your service. Let us hold tightly to that which is good, supporting the weak, helping the needy, and honoring all people. May the strength of God sustain us. May the power of God preserve us. May the hands of God protect us. May the way of God direct us. May the love of God go with us this day and forever. Amen and amen. I love you so much. Hope you have a